0: Good hey, morning, everybody. Enjoy the extra hour of sleep? Uh, are we all voting that daylight saving time will go away forever? That'd be great. That'd be great. But let's stick it on the side where it doesn't get dark at 4.30 in the afternoon, because that's weird. Um, my name's Jeremy. I'm the pastor here, and um, it's a privilege to be here every week uh, and to be with you and continue to grow um, in this role and in community as, uh, as we continue to follow Jesus together. Have you ever been in a scenario where because you're sort of from the outside looking in, you've been able to see things a little bit differently than the other people around you? Here's an example. Um, when I took my first mission trip ever, I was just uh, cresting into my first ministry role in my early 20s, and they sent me and a group of unknowing um, high school students that I was only about four years older than them to halfway across the world to Mumbai, India. And they they send us over there, and we're working with a, a number of ministries. One of the things that almost immediately after we got off the plane, I noticed that we were in a different place. The have, if you've ever been to the Middle East, the Far East, uh, there are some of these places that feel so otherworldly. That's like, this exists on the same planet as my experience in America. And we were walking down the streets. It was kind of dusk. And as we we're walking down the streets of this you know, massively populated area, things had gotten kind of calm. The shops had closed. And we noticed, as the people began to clear out, there were all these little, on these crate kind of things, there were all these little uh, idols, these little trinkets, these, these little candle, votive candle uh, surrounded uh, either elephants or donkeys or these various um, things that were worshiped and venerated in the Hindu culture and religion. Cows wandered freely because they're considered holy and sacred. Which was a whole nother uh, sight to see, and in this this new reality, as we were walking, something began to grow in my heart, and it wasn't compassion. What I started to find myself doing is: Do these people really think that, like these little? totems these little things that they are venerating are actually going to do something for them in their lives? Do do they really think that this little God is a representative of this bigger God and somehow by worshiping this little thing that the the gods are happy and smiling and will bless their lives? That seems so backwards. That seems so odd. That we were headed to a church service that night and we went and sat down in the church service. And you know, uh, if you've ever been in, on a a cross-cultural mission trip, there are those times when you're sort of expected just because you're the newbies, you're expected to say something even though nobody tells you that you're expected to say something. And all of a sudden the room gets kind of quiet and everyone starts sort of just looking over at you. That happened. And so I start feverishly flipping through my Bible since I'm the leader of this thing, wondering where to go And I land on Acts 20. And I say, I get up and I say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. <laughs> Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or the earth that's beneath, or the waters under under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Don't you get it? Yeah. Worship Jesus. Not these little things on the side of the street. What are you doing? Preach. Preach. When, when I got done, I uh, greeted the pastor for a minute, and he said, Hey, <laughs> we, we don't normally talk about idols like that. And I thought I was doing something real good. And that all these backwards people, I was finally, you know, the the American who knew something about something was finally going to teach them. And then at the end of that trip, I got back on my airplane and I ordered the nearest Starbucks and I ruffled the green grass under my feet and I worshiped the God of all comfort known as the air conditioner. D.L. Moody says, you don't have to go to heathen lands to find false gods. America's full of them. Whatever you love more than God, that's your idol. What I had missed in being in this foreign land, and thankfully God brought to mind through my stupidity as I came back, was, oh man, this, this land is filled with many more idols than I expected. I just couldn't see them. I'm just a fish swimming in the American culture water. Swimming in the American dream. Swimming in American Christianity. We're blind. And what this passage is, Lord willing, going to do is begin to open our eyes. To see what we may not even notice. That someone outside of our culture, outside of our time and place can now speak in and help us. So, let's read. We're in Acts 17. Verses 16
1: through 34. Starting there. Now, while Paul, sorry, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And all of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysus, the Aeropagate, Aero, era, Aero, yeah, and a woman named Demarius and others with him. The word of the Lord.
0: Thanks for to God. Thank you. So today we're talking about idolatry and that may be something that feels very foreign and unfamiliar, kind of like my experience in India. That may be something that's more familiar to you if you're kind of in with the, sort of the Christian lingo of that. Wherever you are when you hear that word, let's collectively shelve those assumptions and be curious about what is it that the Lord wants to teach us from this passage. Come fresh, come without assumptions, come as much as you can with an open heart to what it is that the Lord might do. Because Either way, there is something about idols that shows something about who we are as humans. What idols show about humanity is that we are designed to worship something. And in the absence of an ultimate worship of something, we will plug into that whole worship of all kinds of other things. And it is only when that worship gets set aright that all other things begin to also find their right context in place. Because idols are real, idols are damaging, and idols point that we have a greater need than we can solve ourselves. So, here's what we're going to do. Very quickly, because we're going to come to the table, I know that's a pastor thing to say, but I'm really going to try to do it this time, Um, is we're going to hit these three points. First, the Athenian idols, understanding what it, we have to understand the context before we can kind of translate that to ourselves. The Athenian idols, second, my idols, third, their idols, whoever the they is that you find yourself in contact with during the week. Okay, so let's talk first about Athens. Uh, First couple of verses of, uh, of the passage that we just read show Athens to be this sort of intellectual and cultural metropolis of the day. Um, being in ancient Greece, it had all these beautiful buildings, and it had, you know, bu- buildings like the Parthenon, not the one on West End, but exactly like it just a long time ago, uh, and things like this, these giant marble statues like the 42-foot statue of Athena. Not the one on West End, but still just like it a long time ago. Uh, Things like the Agora with these amazing porticos that were painted over by famous artists. And like the Areopagus, this place where all of the cultural and social and political elites of the day would stop and just talk hour upon hour about anything that they saw as could be the next thing on the list. And Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite and all the rest that you find in the Percy Jackson novels were, uh, were the Greek gods and goddesses that made up this pantheon. Uh, it's been said by one Greek historian that Athens is as if one great altar, one great sacrifice. Another historian says, it's easier to find an idol than a person. It wasn't the most populous of places, but it was the place where all the elites and all the idolatry found their home. And Paul finds himself here after being run out of a few other towns. There's this kind of, this crew of Jews that's chasing him, and they keep chasing him from town to town as he is circumventing and circumnavigating the Mediterranean era, uh, era right now. Uh, we've made a giant jump that also would be worth taking a minute to orient ourselves in. Uh, last week, when Jonathan Nash got up here to preach, who did a wonderful job, by the way. Please go listen to that uh, if you haven't heard that yet. That was in Acts 10 and 11. We've now jumped to Acts 17. That is a massive jump. Uh, and so a number of things have happened, not all of which do we have time to talk about. But by and large, during that time, the end of Acts 11, beginning of Acts 12, is when Paul gets commissioned as a, a missionary. So he's come to faith. The Holy Spirit's worked on him for a number of years in Arabia. He's come back, and now he's being uh, he's being equipped and sent out as a missionary, particularly a missionary to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews of the area. And so he gets sent out on these three different missionary journeys. This is the second of those journeys. So he's already kind of gone around the barn one time, come back to Jerusalem. They had this thing called a Jerusalem council where they figured out some things about how Jews and Gentiles should hang out together in the church. Then he goes on the second one and that's where we find ourselves today. So he's being chased around almost on accident. He finds himself in Athens. It doesn't, it's on his route but it doesn't seem like it was a super thoughtful uh, move on his part. It was more so just kind of how the spirit led him in time and how the circumstances worked out. So here he finds himself, his boys are still uh, back in the previous city, and he's kind of alone, just wandering around, kind of doing what he does. And so he goes, typically, as is his uh, fashion, and he goes in the synagogue, and he talks and he debates with the Jews there. He kind of walks through the marketplace, of which this one is thriving and bustling, uh, and then he walks and just views all of this beauty. And what comes to him is not this sense of awe and wonder and amazement at the cultural achievements of man, but instead what begins to come over him is this sense of, ugh, inside. It says that his spirit was provoked. That's a very similar word to just on the tail end of the golden calf incident in, uh, in the middle part of Exodus, right after they sort kind of like the first idol is made, on the tail end of that, there is this refrain that the Lord is a jealous God, in the same way that a spurned wife is jealous for her husband if he has walked away. And there's this kind of anger mixed with grief that begins to come over him that he desires so much more for these people that they seem so far away and so confused. Because what they believed in the time, and this is, again, what we have to understand when we think about how to translate the idolatry back then to the idolatry of our day. These gods and goddesses were thought to control all the natural processes of the world. So, like the sea, and love, and rain, and war, and fertility. And so, in order for those things to go well with them, they would venerate and worship uh, these various deities. But these deities could be fickle. Like, have you seen Hercules? They could be fickle. They could be, you know, they could fight amongst each other. You never knew from one day to the next if they were going to be happy or not happy, if they're going to be happy with you or not happy with you. They could turn on a dime. It wasn't always logical. And he sees past all of those things to recognize the same truth about our, our hearts is the same thing going on in their hearts. They are trusting that something that they can control will be the thing that can make all blessings flow down. Like if I can just do A plus B plus C, that will equal health and happiness and wholeness and fertility and no war and lots of crops and rain and health and wealth and prosperity. Praise the Lord. We can fall into the very... Same traps. And now that's where these things begin, these worlds begin to collide. Because he knows that the Lord desires their worship and he knows that the Lord is jealous for them. And he's jealous for them to be jealous of the Lord as well. So that's what's happening in Athens. Now let's talk about what's happening in us. Before we get too judgy, we can realize that that same dynamic of worship that's happening in those ancient Athenians is also happening in our hearts every morning within three seconds of waking up. For instance, we can bow down at the idol of UT football. Thankfully, the dogs are here to help. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't... I couldn't help it, I'm sorry. I've lost half of you for the rest of the sermon. Um, but for real, like the idol of sport, the idol of being a part of something bigger than ourselves, the, the, the idol of belonging and place and success and wholeness and everything being right in the world because it's right with our team. We can bow down at the idol of relationship. We can bow down at the idol of a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife or a friendship lost, or a friendship gained, in hopes of receiving some kind of security, and approval, and identity, that says, I'm okay because they think I'm okay, or I'm okay because I have that person. We can bow down at the idol of our bank account, either with too many zeros, or not enough, in hopes of receiving control, and freedom, Comfort, security, these are the things that our hearts everywhere are longing for. And we can find ourselves going towards and gravitating towards all kinds of things that we maybe even never would expect. So Tim Keller defines an idol like this. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can. And hear me say, none of those things I just mentioned are bad. Like, nothing wrong with UT football, nothing wrong with healthy relationships, nothing wrong with having a healthy amount of money in your bank accounts. Where it begins to go wrong is when those things begin to be your ultimate security, your ultimate hope, your ultimate comfort over and above what the Lord provides they're misplaced desires, not necessarily completely wrong ones. So, how is it that we can begin? Paul has this amazing ability in this passage to sort of like uh, parse apart all of these. You know, he uses their own poetry kind of and speaks into it. He uses this amazingly winsome, gracious way to speak to others about the gospel. And we may read this, and I've heard other sermons on this that leave me feeling like, well, shoot. I'm not smart enough to do this. So how am I supposed to engage if the point of this is that I engage well with both my idols and others? How do I help other people? How do I help people who are far away from the Lord begin to put some of these pieces together? Here's something I realized this past week. The reason that Paul was so able, now for one, he's just an amazingly gifted dude and not all of us are gonna be him. But there is also something unique, uh, not unique about his story that it can also be true of ours. And that is, just a couple chapters later, he's retelling his testimony that Dave preached on just a couple of weeks ago. And remember, Dave helped us see this, that he was zealous for the God that he thought existed. He was zealous for who he thought Yahweh was, who he thought this Jewish God was, and what it turned him into is a persecutor of Christians instead of a lover of people. Because you can be religiously zealous and wrong. You, you can be sincere and misguided. And that's, a, that's for us first in this room as much as it is for the culture at large. Paul recognized, though, that the zeal, that his zeal was rooted more in control than it was love. It was not helping him to love God and neighbor like Deuteronomy said he should. That was, he knew that verse. But somehow, because he was able to justify himself, it turned into this ugly, awful thing. And it's true with us. We can justify a lot of good things. I'm just, I'm just trying to take care of a couple of things. I'm just trying to make sure my bank account's secure. I'm just trying to make sure my kids stay on the right track. But those can become ultimate means. Means to their own ends, not means to the ends of glorifying the Lord and loving him and other people. And that's where these things get misguided and out of whack but remember what Jesus says when he comes to Paul. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's like, I thought I was helping. But he was sincere but sincerely misguided. And we can be sincere but sincerely misguided about the way we spend our time and the way we spend our money and the way we spend the talents that we've been given. Is it possible that our nice, safe, controlled, Creve Hall, church-going life that we've created is more about control than it is about love. One of the most frightening verses in the Bible is when Jesus says, there are some of you that are doing such good things on the outside, but one day, when we meet face-to-face, I'm gonna say, 'I, I didn't know you. What are the things right now that you may be spending your time on that ultimately are for their own ends and not the ends of loving God and neighbor? Do you know those things about yourself? Do do you know where those places are? Where are you putting the energy of your life right now? Where, Where do your daydreams go when you let your mind spin? What are you religious about? I must do, I will do, my life is about this. I had an example, but I don't really have time to tell it. Um, You can ask me about my front door later. How about that? I've made an idol of my front door. Um, It has to do with perfectionism. That's probably enough. Um, There's so many things we can turn into ultimate things that aren't. But Paul gets invited into this place uh, where this governing body of civil and religious life meets. He gets invited with these new ideas, schooled in his own idolatry and all the ways he made a good thing an ultimate thing. He made following God something that he ended up killing other people over, that he became acquainted with their struggles enough to be able to have a conversation with them. And so I want to give you four questions that uh, are going to help us kind of frame out our time at the table together this morning. These are four questions that can help you to kind of reverse engineer your own heart idolatry. What are the things that I am trusting in more than the Lord for my safety, security, health, wholeness, happiness, fullness, and forever? First, Who is God? You can write these four down and then we'll explain them. One, who is God? Two, what has God done? Three, who are you? four. What should you do? And here's how we can reverse engineer the four of those. Who is God? What has he done? Who are you? What do you do? Here's the idea. You can look at these in two orders. Let's start with the bottom, with the fourth question. What are you doing? This would be a way to begin to diagnose yourself. What is something right now that if I stand outside of myself and look at myself right now, I can recognize that as unhealthy? Like in the moment, it feels right, it feels good, it feels self-justified, but when I stand outside of it and point at it, I say, that, that's probably unhealthy. Or maybe it's something that a friend, a relative, a spouse, a child, a whoever has pointed out recently in you. Be curious about that. What is something that I'm currently doing that's unhealthy? What does verse 21 say that Paul did? Paul says, they were spending their time, he notices, in doing nothing except telling and hearing of something new. What did that tell Paul based on what they were doing? What did that tell Paul about what was going on in here? They were constantly on the search for something new. What does that mean? That means they, they were searching for truth. They were searching for an absolute truth and could not find it. And they were looking everywhere. Okay, next one up the list. What does that say about who they are? What are they doing? What does that show about who they are, their identity? He says, verse 22, I see that you guys are really religious. Like you're doing so much in the name of religion, in the name of A plus B plus C will equal a happy, healthy whole life. And he uses this as a point of commonality, as as if to say, I've been there too. I've done the very same thing. It looked a little different, but I've done the exact same thing. You're very religious, me too. Next. What has God done then? Well, according to them, all these gods control all these various aspects of life. They're fickle, they're finicky. They're searching for this truth. They're not finding anything. They even... Then, fourth question, who is God? And they would say, verse 23, I don't know. It's not really God. It's more like there's all these gods. And there's even, we want to cover our bases, so there's also going to be an altar to an unknown God just so we don't forget anybody or leave anybody out that they get mad and hurt us later. To the unknown God. So who is God, according to them? They don't know. I, I wish we knew. And then look at the latter half of the passage. He begins to flip it. And he says, he begins to answer that question for them. Who is God? Well, God made the world and everything in it. You don't create God. In fact, God created you. What has God done? Verse 31, he will both judge the world in righteousness and he has raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. So what has God done? He is the judge of all things because he made it so he can. And he is the redeemer of the world through Christ. Then who are you? Who does he say that they are as he preaches to them? You're the creature, not the creator. Stop trying to be the creator. Stop trying to be in control of all these things. You have to be exhausted. Stop. Put it down. So what does he say you should do? Repent. Believe. Lay that down. And rest in Jesus. So as you come to the table this morning, ask yourself those same questions. What am I doing right now that's not healthy? What does that then say about who I think I am? I'm alone. I'm unworthy. I'm out of control. What has has God done? Well, not much for me lately. Who is God? Impotent. AWOL. MIA. MIA. And then begin to let this table speak a better story over you. Because who is God according to these elements right here? God is the creator and sustainer and ruler of mine and every life in this room and every life in this world that ever has been and ever will be. What has God done? He has sent Jesus to live a perfect life in my stead and on my behalf for all of those places that I have totally messed it up, for all those things that I have flipped from good things to God things, for all those things that are good gifts that he has given me, that I've said, thanks God, I kind of want those and I don't want you. He has lived, lived a perfect life only worshiping who he should and that is his father and our father. But not only that, he is one who has redeemed his people. He is one who has shed his blood, the blood of his dearly loved son, on the cross, poured out for us. So who am I? Child. King. Queen. Priest. Family these are the realities that this speaks over us. That not only we get to sort of like cognate, yeah, okay, yeah, I can kind of follow your logic there. We get to eat. We get to drink these realities in. And the Spirit does something mysteriously as we do to more and more convince us that this is true. All those things I spend all of my energy and time on that deplete me, those are the lies. This is the truth. But I forget it, and I forget it again, and I'm gonna walk out there and forget it again. And so I need this. We need this to constantly remind us that who am I? I'm a dearly loved child, so what should I do? I should rest in his love, and I should be filled to boldly go out and do what he has called me to do. And if at the least that is called to continue to repent over all the ways during this next week that I'm gonna prop other things up, up as God, And as I see fit and as the Lord allows to be able to graciously, lovingly help other people in the same ways that I've been helped in Christ. So would you, together, eat and drink of this reality? Uh, The Apostle Paul, same guy who's talking about uh, idolatry here in Athens, is also the same apostle who cautions us. And he cautions us with the reality that, listen, this this is also a sobering reality that we have to wrangle with a couple of things so that we don't take this uh, unwisely, that we don't take this in a way that confuses us about what it's actually saying. So the first question that he gives us is, do you believe that this actually happens? Do you believe that there really was a man named Jesus who was also God, who lived perfectly and died a substitutionary death for you on the cross? Have you come to that place not only in your head, but in your heart? of I needed that because my heart is an idol factory, because I am going to consistently run away from him, I have to have him running towards me all the time. If you've been convinced of that by the Spirit's power, then this is yours. And if you have not only been convinced of that, in and of your own self, but you have said, I need other people to help me. I need other Pauls in my life to be watching me for all the places that I'm going to go wacky all week and to help me and to cultivate healthy relationships in which I can be vulnerable and in which I can be called out, in which I can be courageous and in which I can be humble. That's the desire of this place, that's the desire of the culture that we hope the Spirit builds here. And so, if those two things are true of you, this is yours. So, Lord Jesus, on the night in which He was betrayed, took bread and He broke it, and He said, "Do this as often as you eat in remembrance of Me. This is My body broken for the sins of many." And in the same way, after supper, He took the cup. And said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There is a new way to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I'm okay with him and he's okay with me. And it it is in his blood poured out on the cross. And so would you by faith eat and drink and taste and see that he's good. If you need prayer, uh, as you come up, you can kind of come up as you will. Uh, Take uh, a seat at the kneelers. And then take a moment, take a breath. Think on some of these questions. What am I doing right now? What does that say about who I believe myself to be? What does that say about what I believe God to be? And how can I let this speak a better word over me? After you've had a moment to pause, you can open your hands and receive. Uh, If you need prayer, you can cross your arms and we'll have some folks back here who would uh, love to pray for you. This is a sweet time. Uh, and so let me pray, and we'll enter into it together. So, Father, we pray. Our hearts are so fickle. My heart is so fickle. Uh, thank you for the the friends that you have given around me, even this week, that have continued to call me back to the reality that this is not my show. This is not my church. Uh, This is not my life even. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours uh, is the sustaining grace that keeps us alive, even this breath right now that I pray to you. Meet us. Spirit, meet us in a special way as we commune with you now, convincing our hearts more and more of your great sufficiency and everything else that we trust. Put it in its right place. Uh, Put sport, put recreation, put friendship, put marriage, put children, put uh, education, uh, put work and work-life balance and home and money and all the other things that are good things in and of our lives, uh, in and of themselves, put them in their right place in our lives. Would they not take us over anymore? And keep us humble to keep coming back to you for all the times they do.